Welcome to the Hobcast Book Show, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime, mystery and suspense novels. Each week, we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of running a creative business in this challenging world. We'll hear from the people who make this possible, the authors, the cover designers and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast Book Show from Hobeck Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. Welcome to the Hobcast Book Show, episode number one hundred and forty-three. Did you have to look that up? No, I didn't actually. Oh, well but done. I was, I was, you, know, you saw the brain whirring there as I as I was thinking, what number is it? But anyway, welcome to the show. My name's Adrian Hobart. My name is Rebecca Collins. And together we run Hobeck Books, UK independent publishers of the following genres: um, uh, crime, um, mystery, suspense. Um, thrillers. You know, you, you throw me because you normally say the following four genres. Yes, I thought that might throw you. And, and that's did. why I threw it in. It was like a little... It know, really, it's really strange. A red herring, possibly, in, yes. the, in the crime context. So that's where the ums came from. Yeah, absolutely. Um, if you hear some mooing in the background, the cows have been moved, the dairy herd that uh, alternates around the fields around our, our barn here. I actually moved to the nearest one and I could hear them just as we were about to start recording. Do you know, and also, do you know what they were mooing at earlier? You might have heard them while you were watching the rugby. They what? were mooing at me. Doing the mowing? I was mowing the, I was mowing the lawn. Yes. <laughs> and they all came to the fence and every time I had a break, because it was quite hard work, I had these frequent breaks just to get my breath and they'd all look at me and go, moo, as if they were saying, moo, <laughs> keep mowing. <laughs> Well, actually, I think they're probably looking at that grass and thinking that that, that had our name See, on it. I was so tempted to just go across, lift a cow over the fence, plonk it in our garden <laughs> yeah. and come and have a cup of tea and good, let it good do the mowing. Lift, good luck lifting a cow. Well, welcome to the show. Our guest this week is Jim Kelly, J.G. Kelly, and his brilliant book, The, the White Lie, is um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fabulous book set in 1912 and the Antarctic expedition, the Nova um, the Terra Nova expedition by uh, Robert Falcon Scott, Captain Scott. Well, very, very famous story, of course, that many, many Britons will know. You say it's set in 1912. Mm. It's actually not really set in 1912. Well, it's I also think, set thought, in 1969. It's a six, yeah, so we'll we'll leave it for the readers to sort of okay. work out um, why it's it's got this sort of dual. Yeah, absolutely. So J.G. Kelly is a really experienced, top-notch novelist and uh, joins us a little later so we're looking forward to that let's start this week with news and some very sad news for our author community uh, the loss of dale brendan hyde who uh, we knew quite well um we we have his books <laughs> we do have his books and um as recently just a few weeks ago um we were talking about whether i might do the narration of some of those yeah, books he, for him he approached me and asked me about um the possibility of Hobeck taking on the narration, and um, yeah, sadly that didn't come to fruition. <laughs> no, because no. I think his you know health obviously became much more important. And yes, I mean he'd suffered from uh, cancer for quite quite some time, and, and recurrence of it, and uh, it was clear pretty much when he was at Harrogate this year that um, he was treating as you know he was fighting it, but 
I didn't was... actually. I knew he came to Harrogate, but our paths didn't cross this year. No, no, no we so. didn't see him. But that was the, the you know the word that things were were bleak. So very sorry for everyone connected to Dale, and um, you know many of our authors were good friends too. And we, as I say, had spent time on platform before um, with him. You know the same yeah, events in Harrogate. And, I mean that was a year ago, almost mm. exactly a year ago. And the one thing I will say for Dale is he was such a fighter. You know he fought. For injustice, he fought uh, for his, to battle against his health and uh, you know his ill health. Um, so very sad that he lost the battle in the end. Yeah. Um, so our thoughts are with his family and everyone connected to him, and uh, we, he will be very much missed. Uh, well, I mean, on the health subject, I did mention last week that my dad would likely going to have an operation. He has had his uh, triple bypass and valve replacement which um, was a mega operation and not something you take lightly when you're 81, uh, as my dad is. And um, he's very, you know, doing extremely well. That was on Thursday uh, last week. Went to see him yesterday for the first time uh, when he came out of intensive care. And, uh, yeah, remarkable. Um, he's a remarkable old dog, really. He's made of rubber. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I swear he's made of rubber. Yeah, other people have said that before. Um, yeah, so he's on the mend. And uh, I, I suspect that, by the time we record next week's podcast, I shall be uh, up in um, up in the north. Yeah, um, we're not sure yet. You might be looking after be him on, on his uh, yeah on his uh, return from hospital. So um, we'll we'll look forward to that. But anyway, it's good news, and uh, you know that obviously has been sort of overshadowing a lot of my thoughts this week. Um, you know, waiting for news, and uh, my sister Rachel has done a brilliant job of coordinating all of that news and making sure everyone <laughs> knows in the family w- what's going on. Does but... she want a job with Hobeck? <laughs> <laughs> We've offered before, I think, but I think she's got her hands full at the moment. Anyway, so positive news on on, on that front from a, a personal family point of view. Okay, into the publishing news, and um, this issue of Spotify offering fifteen free hours of streamed audiobook content to subscribers every month is really taking off as a big issue and it's the society of authors who are uh, adding to this debate and they're really not mincing their words here because they feel the society of authors is a uk uh, sort of wouldn't say union but you know they're looking representing the the interests of authors and their members they say they're deeply concerned to learn from press reports that all major book publishers have agreed new limited streaming deals with Spotify. Under these agreements, subscribers to the Spotify premium service in the UK and Australia will gain access to up to 15 hours of audiobook content per month through the Spotify app from a catalogue of more than 150,000 audiobooks. And as far as we are aware, says the SOA, no Authors or agents have been approached for permission for such licenses, and authors have not been consulted on license or payment terms. Publishing contracts differ, but in our view, most licenses given to publishers for publishing audio, of audio do not include streaming. That's pretty true, I think. Yeah. Certainly not in ours. No, no, not at all. So It's, it's not a traditional publishing contract thing. Yeah, and it's sort of regarded as beyond publishing, but should it be regarded no, as beyond well, publishing? No, well, I mean, this is a very interesting thing. So, in fact, it is likely that streaming was not a use that had been invented when mu- many such contracts were entered exactly, into. Exactly, yeah. 
Uh, we know the devastating effect that music streaming has had on artists' incomes and the impact of streaming and subscription video on demand platforms on screenwriter incomes and their working conditions. Hence the uh, strike that's been hitting Hollywood recently with the street, uh, screen actors, uh, writers. That's over now, though, isn't it? Yeah, that's over, but but only only just. And the actors are still on strike. Trying uh, to pro- okay. They're trying to protect the interests, particularly of sort of the the smaller roles in films. Uh, so you know, rather than um, so actually not having CGI, you know, uh, cast outside of the major stars, um, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Well, the streaming of audiobooks, the SOA says competes directly with sales and is even more damaging than music streaming because books are typically only read once. Fair point. Because if you, yeah, that's if you, true. You know, cause music, you get, it's every time you listen to it, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, but it's still peanuts. I know on it's the peanuts, dollar. but they're saying it, it's peanuts and then it's just but, once, one yes, peanut. Yes, but you, know, you might listen to that album 20 times through your subscription yes. and the artist will benefit in that fashion, even though it's for peanuts, from you know, micro, micro, micro payments. But with audiobooks, it, you get nothing. Yeah. So this is, uh, this is a, you know, a, a fascinating issue. And uh, the, um, the further comment came from uh, the SOA saying uh, that uh, book publishers have long expressed reservations about subscription deals for digital content, but Spotify has offered variations of typical pooled income arrangement with a more limited offer that publishers believe will assure agents and authors that their income streams will not be undermined. This was uh, Sean Bailey writing that in the bookseller a week ago or so. Um, So what are they asking for? They're asking publishers to contact authors and agents immediately to inform them of the details of the proposed deals and to seek their approval. We demand that all publishers inform their authors and agents with full transparency about the deals they have negotiated to seek permission in full respect of their right not to give permission and to remove their books from the Spotify catalogue. Negotiate an appropriate share of the receipts on a clear and equitable pay model, which should equate to no less than the amount that would be received from a sale of the same audiobook. Well, that ain't going to be coming through. Uh, Ensure that with all licenses that Spotify applies frictions, as with e-lending, such as time-limited loans and guarantees of payment, whatever proportion of the book is read. Again, this is another issue that has come up through Audible, um, you know, returns and, and things like that, which we've talked about in the past, where people have been in negative, <laughs> owing Audible <laughs> for the privilege of having their audio yeah, books so, on there because so, people have been handing them back. Yeah, so you get negative royalties. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I think the SOA are quite right to, to raise this, and it is no one saying what's in the deal and how it was struck. Um, and, you know, I think the, the general feeling is amongst the, the author community, but also in the independent publishing community, is that these big players, tech players, are not in the <laughs> they're not pursuing the interests of the people who make the stuff. No, they're not. They're, they're pursuing their own interests, which is to maximise any profit they can get from the stuff, as you call it. Yeah, absolutely. So anyway, that, that one uh, rattles on. What have, you, what have you got this week? Um, so... Uh, Trying not to be depressing, but another company, another independent publisher, has um, announced that they are winding down. Um, I didn't, I don't know them personally because they don't sort of, they're not in the same circles as us. It's a um, comic 
publisher. So Black Hearted Press Comics, based in Glasgow. They've mm. been trading for 12 years, and they announced this week that, um, sadly, that they're having to wind down the publishing um, aspect of their business. They're going to still be sort of in the the book world, but not as a publisher anymore. So um, another sad... When you um, say not as a publisher, do we mean physical copies or anything, anything fresh? Um, that's a really good question. Or are they going to just manage their back catalogue? Um, that's a really good question. Uh, so the the, um, the owner of the company, uh, Shah Nazir, um, says that they will not be stepping away entirely from the world of comics. Um, he will continue his freelance publishing consultancy role okay. for the Terry Pratchett estate. So, ah, right. you know, so he's he's still in the business, but um, just unfortunately not being able to be a publisher anymore of new content. Mm. So very sad. Yeah, absolutely. Well, a familiar story, uh, yeah. sadly, um, in the last few months. And, um, you know, something, uh, just a, another bit of perspective on, on what we do is that we had a we had an inquiry from a bookshop in a particular territory um, asking for fresh copies of uh, books set in that area, and um, again, you know, we looked at the economics of of trying to get the books out to this place, which is not in the UK but um, closely associated with it. Should we put it that way? Um, we'd make how much of a loss was it? Well. So I actually did it since you and I spoke. I um, replied to this bookshop in question and I said that based on the print price only, we could offer um, 40% discount, which is fairly low for retail anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, But the shipping cost would be transferred to the bookshop on top of that. So this bookshop isn't based on mainland UK. There is a shipping um, cost associated with um, if they ordered, say, up to five... 10, 15 books of this um, series. And I haven't heard anything back yet, but um, so effectively, uh, the, the retail discount, if you if you used all of that together, so the printing cost and the shipping cost, the effective retail discount is um, 30%. Right. Which I don't think they're going to go for. No, and that, and that doesn't represent any profit for us? No profit for us at all. I, I it, it was a break-even. Right. Because well, it's I better thought, than some. If I offered... At a profit, they would just laugh. Yeah. So. Yeah. No. Well, that's it, and so that's that's the challenge at the moment. Um, you know, the economic model of publishing books has changed so dramatically in the last year that it is near impossible to find a margin for everybody to be satisfied. I think we've got to the point that we recognise we're not going to make um, our fortune on physical copies of books. We we make money on eBooks and. Um, well, make... I mean, we should make. Yeah, I mean, there is a margin. Yeah, the theory, the theory. No, we, yeah, I mean, there's a margin there yes. on ebooks, but it's a narrow one, depending on how much you spend so on I'm trying not, to I'm get n- people to buy them. I'm not talking about profit. I'm talking about yes. revenue. Revenue so, turnover. Yeah. Yeah. So we get revenue from ebooks. We we recognise now that um, that there's no margin or very little margin on printed mm. books, and we're doing that almost as a sort of happy bonus, as opposed mm. to our main business. Absolutely. Right, okay, um, let's move on to uh, the interview, shall we? Yes. JG Kelly joined us from his home in Ely in Cambridgeshire, an area I'm very, very familiar with. As everyone knows, I'm from that neck of the woods. And um, Jim is a very experienced novelist, has written several crime series, but uh, also is now dabbling in the world of historical speculation sort of you know sort of, sort of. we explain in the interview don't we so. taking real events and asking what if 
And in this case, it's surrounding the uh, famous, infamous, um, for a long period of the 20th century, celebrated tale of sort of heroic failure of the British expedition led by Captain Scott to the South Pole, where he was beaten in the race by Roald Amundsen of Norway by about 30 days, actually. They were 30 days ahead. And then his team of uh, four on its way back perished Mm. uh, in the um, incredibly hostile conditions. And you've got to remember that these guys were hauling their sleds back from the, the, the South Pole hundreds of miles hoping to uh, that someone would come to meet them a portion of the way to save them. Yeah, and but, that's, that's a crucial element of this story, so I think we should just leave it there and get people to read it. And, yeah, indeed, speak to J.G. Kelly. Well, it's a, a huge honour to speak to Jim Kelly, J.G. Kelly, uh, as we publish as the book The White Lie comes out from Hodder, and um, it's a terrific book, and... It is a challenging one as well in the sense that like all good historical uh, sort of thriller fiction, it takes an established story that has gone down generations of heroic failure in this case and turns it on its head somewhat. What was the inspiration for you? Well, I always had this... um, uh... A fantasy that when I was reading the uh, the diary, the Scott diary, you know, it would get to that page where they're approaching the pole, and I think um, Bowers spots a black dot, you know, in the in the in the uh, head, and and they soon discover that they're the little flags that the Norwegians have uh, left. And Scott says that thing about um, "Good God, this is an awful place." And the, the whole kind of mood of the thing kind of collapses. And I used to fantasise that I would turn over and the little black dots wouldn't be there, that they would get there and they would be first. And I thought, can I can I take the established broad shape of the Scott story and see and make that work, that he was first but got cheated out of it? So I wasted two years of my life trying to do that. <laughs> <laughs> And it can't be done. So just if there's anyone out there, don't try and do it because like, you just can't get the big bones of the story. Mm. Uh, so I was stuck. And um, uh, I didn't really know uh, what to do. And I'm very interested in, um, I was very interested in uh, uh, space uh, exploration, uh, being a, a child of the, of Apollo. You know, I was 11 when uh, Armstrong uh, walked on on the moon. And I was watching a, a docu- fantastic documentary called Chasing the Moon, which is an American nine-hour documentary. It came out quite recently, and it d- told you the whole Apollo story. And we got to the moon, and they walked on the moon. And actually, I mean, it was exciting, and th- there was some tension. And and Buzz Aldrin says that wonderful um, thing, Magnificent Desolation, which is a direct echo of, of Scott. Uh, and suddenly the whole thing became much more tense because the real question was, would they get back alive? So I thought, that's what I'll do. Mm. I'll, I'll, I'll let them get there second. But the, the story that I'll, I'll try and refigure will be the return. So, so what if it, you know, it wasn't the ice, it wasn't the cold, 
It wasn't the lack of, of food. Uh, it wasn't cocking up so many of the actual arrangements, but that there was somebody else involved uh, and an outside agency which brought about their death. So, you know, we're, we're, we're heading towards murder. Uh, and then I thought, well, I can do that. Within the bones, I can work within that space. And um, so uh, I started off. That's um, mm. that's fascinating. Yeah, it's that what if? Yeah. Thing. Well, it's an interesting it's an interesting story in itself. Even if you weren't to intervene as an author and take that premise, yeah, there's so many what ifs anyway within this whole adventure and disaster, yeah. as it turned out. I mean, what if he hadn't relied on motor transport? What if he not? bother with ponies and done what he was advised to do and take dogs instead. Yeah. What if um he hadn't been spooked by Amundsen heading for the pole and and taking shortcuts and 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 uh compressing the the time in which yeah. they could do the, the expedition. All those things and and then there's the element of human hubris which you can understand why they set off um in the context of this sense within British society, of course a Britain's going to be the first to the South Pole. Yeah. <laughs> they have to be. And that's, you know, there was a national fervour around all this. I mean, it was yes. funded by the public largely, wasn't it? So yes. this, this, you know, there's so many elements here which are fascinating. Yeah. And, and, the, and the, the, the lack of um, what's funny, you know, really, is that this kind of thirst... Um, for Brits to be first at things, you know, uh, eventually runs out of places <laughs> to be first to. So we end up with the South Pole. I mean, there is no point in being first, but it's there. Um, and it, it it's that uh, sense of, it, it's almost like, sort of, it's almost sort of metaphysical, the, the idea that, that they set out across a kind of blank landscape to a blank spot in order to stick a flag in and say, <laughs> we got here first. It's just great. Um, and for a long time, you know, I, I had sort of, I had sympathy uh, and I thought that, you know, it was a brave thing to do. Um, but I think the more I sort of looked at it, the more I wondered about how right it was to put people's lives at risk who maybe okay everybody did have a choice but some people had more choice than others you know there are plenty of people and there are people who died in that that last push for the pole and the return who were basically doing their job you know they they'd come along they didn't know whether they were going to be in the final party they, they were particularly bothered whether they were going to be in the final party and their lives end up being kind of sort of wasted because of a series of really very poor decisions and um, i mean particularly i think taking five people yes to the pole and not taking four and therefore having to send a three back and th there's a there's a there's a fantastic um match up here with apollo um with mm -hmm. apollo 13 and uh nasa spent years trying to work out why that explosion happened on apollo 13 and it was a long series of tiny interconnected events going back to some guy taking a piece out of one of the Apollos that they didn't use and putting it in the next Apollo 
thinking that it was exactly the same piece and it wouldn't make any difference. And then that kicked onto the next Apollo, kicked onto the next, kicked onto the next, and eventually you get an explosion in space and they're incredibly lucky to get back alive. And you can see that because the way Scott ran things, he's constantly starting these little things running <laughs> that are, are, are all going to you know, conspire uh, to kill people even though they're very, very small decisions to start with. And like the taking the five to the pole, you can argue it didn't make a, a lot of difference to the five, but it did make a huge difference to the three who then had to get back with the same amount of stuff, which meant that I mears threw, threw, uh, threw it in. Um, it meant that the, the uh, food didn't go out for the dogs. It meant that uh, there wasn't a party further out to meet Scott on the way back in. So it, it's just that concatenation of events which can spring from a bad decision um, and also a really bad framework for decisions, which is I decide what's going to happen and not allowing people uh, the room. You know, you make the decision, you'll be there, you can make a judgment. And you know, there's a fatal lack of leadership back at um, base uh, through the whole second half of the uh, expedition because, you know, Scott can't do anything. <laughs> He's not there. And decisions about, you know, um, whether to, which they should have done, uh, you know, launch a um, a rescue uh, earlier uh, fell to people who, well, you know, they'd really, they were just placed and they'd just been left there to fill a void, not to actually be in charge. Yeah, because we're talking about a period, I mean, they're all, I mean, not every member of the expedition is in the in the military, but you know yeah. there was a military chain of command which was established through you know the nineteenth century. It will do as I say, sort of approach, yeah. which the British then took into the First World War, and yeah. with with the consequences. And in a sense, that sort of level of you know uh, a leader making decisions that leads to people's deaths was a was a has parallels with what happened a couple of yeah. years later. Um, throughout the first, world, the first war. world war yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. you know that, you know do your duty that's more important you know show your courage uh die for your country kind of yeah. approach that modern audiences this is the thing that i find so hard to, to imagine we just very few people think like that nowadays well, we don't have experience of that do we no we don't and it, i think i mean it was particularly bad in the navy wasn't it i think that's where that where it persisted sort of for the longest period of time I mean, the expedition technically, I mean, isn't a military expedition. It's a private expedition, but they obviously agreed that they would take orders. But Amir's, you know, um, when he got back, he was so fed up that he just said, that's it. <laughs> and he just waited at uh, Cape Evans for a boat to take him away. I mean, he was just out and you, you can't really blame him, really. But um, and of course, you've got the fatal uh, mistake of um, having a poor second in command. Uh, who was in no real, you know, uh, condition, uh, either mentally or physically, uh, to fill the gap. So it uh, it just gets worse, really. And and I mean, uh, I think I think he, he gets really hung up on this idea that it's not a race for the pole. It, one thing is, it's not a race for the pole. So you know, it's a scientific expedition. You know, we're going to explore and all this sort of stuff, and that's what undermines the whole thing. You know, because we've got all of these sideshows going on with men going off in different directions and, you know, crazy sort of adventures. Um, and I mean, the, 
it is beyond comedy. The um, on the way back uh, when they were in a desperate sort of state, and you know they they came down the Beardmore Glacier uh, and thought they couldn't find the camp. They thought that you know they were going to die because that you can't spend a night on a on a glacier uh, uh, and not get food or heat. And they eventually just found it, and they were completely sort of destroyed by this. And they slept. And the next day, Scott said, great, okay, well, we're going to have a day off. <laughs> Let's go collecting geological samples, you know. <laughs> and, you know. Off they go in order to collect rocks, which they're then going to carry. <laughs> I mean, you really could Sounds like a family up. trip to the beach to me. Yeah, it's just crazy. And, um, I mean, and the lack of logic in that is the, I mean, why didn't they... Um, take the, the geological samples down to the bottom of the glacier, build a can and leave them there. <laughs> you know, I mean, somebody else can come and get them. Yeah. <laughs> they don't have to drag them all the way back. But they did. They were still dragging them, you know, when they're virtually dead. It's crazy. Mm. Yeah, crazy. it really is, isn't it? And I think reading your prologue, that moment where um, some months after you know everyone knows they're dead but you're setting out to find out what happened to them and they find the tent uh i think you evoke that brilliantly these uh the three frozen corpses and of course um captain oates had already made that very famous self-sacrifice yeah i don't know whether were his words really you know uh i'm just going out for a bit uh, you know i I may be some time (laughs) is that that actually correct well, I don't think we know. I think the problem is we can't entirely believe the diaries. Mm. Um, the the Roland Huntsford book, you know, The Last Place on Earth, I mean, he virtually says that Oates was pushed out. Right. You know, I mean, uh, in the sense that there was a kind of moral climate in the tent. We're all dying <laughs> uh, unless we go faster. Uh, we've got absolutely no chance. And then everybody looks at Oates. <laughs> uh, so, um, and I think that's probably quite, because I think the, and uh, maybe some time is, is Scott's remembrance of it. And of course, um, he, he was very interested in making Oates a hero, um, which is, is a horrible contrast to the way in which he dealt with Taffy Evans, mm. who, you know, uh, there's all this stuff about oh you know he's he, he broke down and you know because uh, he's not an officer you know he doesn't have the sort of mental sort of capacity yeah. that was mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. he, he had brain injury uh, probably uh, which incapacitated him and and Oates at least was you know was there all the way uh, to the end um, but yes it's desperately sad and the fun uh, in in doing this. Uh, is to run some of these characters a little bit forward. Mm. Mm. So you just get a bit more of where you think that they would have gone. And um, uh, I, I really enjoyed uh, the, the the pursuit of, of Oates um, and, and his, his story, because I think he's a really interesting um, person. And I, I, I think it's really odd the way he's very closed now, whenever you see a photograph or when he talks or even when he writes, it's really all closed down. And there is sort of something in there 
as, as there was in it with uh, Cherry. Um, and you you asked about where, where the book sort of sort of came from. I think the um, the other big uh, influence really was, uh, and Cherry's sort of the hero, and then passes over uh, to another hero. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, at the end of the Sarah Wheeler um, biography of Cherry, um, she says, um, and you know he he died in London, died in a hotel, um, and he was buried in um, Wheat Hampstead. Uh, near the family home uh, with his secrets. And I was like, what a fantastic last line mm. with his secrets because, you know, something made that man's life pretty appalling for the best part of 40 years. And we don't really know what that was. And so in part, the book is a kind of an attempt to say, well, this this was the burden that he was carrying. And that's why that, um, I mean, at one point, I think they said he had catatonic depression. So he was so depressed he couldn't move. Mm-hmm. Which you know, it, uh, there's something really, really not very good in there, and sort of trying to discern it. And because it's it was always speculated that it was largely the um, the fact that you know did could he have saved Scott and he was the man who sort of didn't do it, um, but. Whenever I look at the, fo- you know, there's a, there's some, there's two famous photographs. There's a photograph of him just before they went on that madcap expedition to find penguin eggs in the middle of the winter. <laughs> uh, which, when they got back to the V&A, said, no, no, thank you, we've already got one. You know, I mean, it was completely yeah. pointless. Um, <laughs> and then there's a picture of him sitting at the table when he got back. And you put those two photographs together, it's really this i mean it's disturbing mm. uh, especially for him a bit for bowers um uh for uh uncle bill doesn't look sort of so bad but but cherry just looks he looks exactly like one of those soldiers in the first world war in a trench mm. who yeah. just can't think you know mm. so what whether that experience whether he you know managed to sort of cover that up enough to get through the rest of the expedition but then once he got back it kind of sort of clicked in. Yes. Yeah. Sort of post-traumatic stress disorder. But yes, all, exactly. Yeah, yeah. almost yeah. not even that, sort of not being able to face the post-traumatic stress. Well, I, yeah. you know, because culturally he's going back to a country where, you know, stiff up a lip, get on with it, you know, yeah. um, and events, you know, he comes back to a country where, yeah, there is, there are people blaming him, saying you could yeah. have gone further. And you could have rescued Scott if you just had a bit of gumption about you. So the, yeah. there's that cultural thing. Then there's the the First World War. Everyone's experienced terrible things. There isn't a great deal of support <laughs> in, a, in uh, a culture the, like that. The, well, and especially, I think, for him, because obviously he came back, he was Lord of the Manor. And so he has this you know, position in society and is, is, is expected to do certain things and goes all the way through those things and does those things sort of rather well. There's a, there's a, must have been horrific. When he got back, his mother, who sounds pretty appalling, um, put on a huge party. You know, the whole village, you know, 20 oxen, all the rest of it. Um, and, you know, uh, he was asked to make a speech and all the rest of it. And, you know, you just think, imagine standing up and, you know, having to make sense of it when you can't even make sense of, you know, what's between your own ears. Um mm. So, um, yeah, 
So uh, he always a, a, appealed as a character, and then uh, the, the 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 trick, I suppose, in the book is to get him to to hand over uh, to a much younger person, Falcon, uh, oh, yeah. the, the, the kind of task. Because um, that's one of the problems with this book, um, and I, I've come across this before, is I wanted to write about what happened in 1912. So unless I go back and actually be there, I've got to be here, 2023. So that means everyone's dead. Yeah. No, I can't reach them. I, I can't even have a character who's going to talk to somebody who was actually there. So the immediacy kind of just drains out that. And so that's why I decided, as well, now in the book is 1969, because that allows me to have characters who are close enough to touch the people who are actually there. So you get a kind of double back. Um, and I... My my last book, The Silent Child, was set in nineteen well, sort of set in nineteen sixty three and reached back to nineteen forty four. So, I keep having to build this bridge back to where I want to get to. And uh, the next book is a mashup between um, D Day um, and the Battle of Hastings. Yeah, no, that, that's, that's difficult to build a bridge there, isn't it? Theme <laughs> here then. <laughs> yeah. that's, quite, that's quite a clever device, isn't it? Because you're looking at history through a period of history yeah so you've got you've got sort of the two things to work with you're not just yes yeah so yeah so it, it's like a, it's 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 a it's a double wormhole back but the, <laughs> i suppose the, the the trick is that the the first wormhole so 63 69 or whatever uh and in fact in the next book it'll be 44 um mm. I, I feel in touch with that you know, I'm, I, you know, I was born. My my brother was born during the war. My dad fought in the war, um, uh, and it, had, you know, it's the thing that had just happened for most of my early life. So I really feel that I can sort of touch it. Mm. it. That doesn't feel like history to me. That just feels like what happened yesterday. So if I can get there, then I can do the the, the second jump. Back to where I want to be, but as you say, the Battle of Hastings is proving slightly more tricky. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, not least because and we were in Sussex um, earlier this year, and we went to to battle and mm. to you know around that area, and the uh, the narrative of that whole thing. I mean, the bio tapestry yeah. tells you one thing, and then you, you know, battle claims it's the site, and you know, it's it's no one really knows a great deal there's not a lot of archaeological support for for what happened but that gives you fictional license then, it does doesn't i it? mean yes i mean there is that <laughs> vacuum which you can now fill but it, yeah it, it, it's tricky isn't it yeah i mean the um what i've done is i've given one of the characters in 1944 is an historian um whose special sort of area is anglo-saxon art and um and so he sees what's going on around him through the tapestry. So, you know, that's what's sort of living in his head. Um, also, wonderfully, the the, the biotapestry has got a missing bit. There's, there's quite a large bit that's not yes. there. So part of this game for me is about spotting gaps that I can fill. 
there's a great one in the Scott um, thing, which I really enjoyed. Um, when um, they get Taffy Evans to the bottom of the glacier and he's dying, they decide to leave him there and they're going to push the stuff to m- make camp and then come back for him. But they decide they can't leave a dying man alone. So they leave him with Oates. There's no record of that conversation. So you've got Oates and you've got Evans. They're sat in this amazing place and we don't know what was said. So that's what, you know, I kind of leap on. <laughs> like, mm. Great. <laughs> so I can fill that space up um, without breaking the story to the extent. Because I think what, what, one issue that I, I keep coming across is I don't really want, I don't want to write alternate history. I don't want to break the past in such a way that we'd all now know that it's a different world, if you know what I mean. So, you know, in Fatherland, we, yes. we, the Germans take the country. So yeah, we'd all yeah. know we'd all know that that had happened. So the the constant uh, thing I've got to deal with is anything I do to the past can't have repercussions which would be felt today. Right. That's that's very. It's a, it's a more subtle change. Well, no, not a change. I, it's you it's know, an explanation for something. Rather I, I suppose than... Fatherland was yeah. my gateway into this, into this concept, and yeah. I, I love it for it. And um, I'm also thinking, you know, more recently and and uh, visually, I suppose the man in the high castle took yeah. a Philip K. Dick and has sort of extrapolated that the Germans have won the war and so the Japanese and they're yeah, yeah. occupying. North America and um, but that sort of approach just says right sod it that's the macro thing that's happened and yeah. this is what spins from it but you're you're actually doing it in a much more sort of in a, in a sort of sort of granular way in a smaller way but yeah because nothing, yeah, nothing's changed about the current time no I mean you'd think reading the the prologue that the discovery of the the notebook and uh, uh, Scott's direction to take the book or the copy of the book back and give it to the Foreign Office, you'd think all of that would begin a series of events which we would now know about. So half of my time is, is taken making sure that doesn't happen. It's like keeping a lid on whatever I've in, introduced because otherwise the, the reader would just say, well, in a second, the... <laughs> If, if Scott had been murdered, I think I'd know about it, and that would that would undermine the um, the credibility of the story. So I think you can get the, to the end of this and put it down and think, okay, that could have happened. Uh, it's, it's, it's pretty unlikely, but <laughs> but it could have happened. Uh, and it that is it is quite tricky because it means that I've got to spot where there is a dividing line between the things I can change and the things I can't change. And uh, a lot of that is just the feel of it, really. And uh, like, for instance, my first idea about allowing Scott to get to the pole first, that would have required the Norwegians to have got their second and then murdered Scott on the way back in order to be first. But the the thing that was always getting in the way is the diaries. Mm. Yeah. So 
yeah, I can't really have the Norwegians turning up all sitting around the campfire and writing <laughs> all the new diaries. You know, it just it just won't wash. And in fact, the diaries were a huge problem until I hit upon the idea that if something had happened that was really incredibly controversial, then Scott may have said to everybody, right, no one puts this in the diary. I'll keep a separate record. That will go back to London and we'll publish the diaries. And they they were desperately interested in publishing the diaries because that's where the money is. Yeah. For most of them, the payoff was going to be that contract with Central News or whoever it was, uh, who were going to publish that diary and you know letters and stuff like that. So, so that it sort of works. It, the I always think the the problem with doing something big like that is you don't want to lose the reader. So, do you bury that halfway through, or do you put it right at the front so the reader kind of hits it, goes over it? and accepts it and that's it and i hope that's what works with this because mm-hmm. um, i just felt it, if i tunneled it away and hid it somewhere that the reader would be constantly reading well hold on a second what about the diaries and yeah exactly yeah and i'm really yeah, like, why, why, have, why have you mentioned it if it's not yeah. a significant part of the story so mm-hmm. yeah well, it's it's interesting because you almost answered the question i was going to ask next which is this um sort of moral dimension to doing what you do in a sense yeah. of you know the morality of playing with history the yeah. accepted uh, version that has been out there for decades and playing within those sort of gray areas the bits that don't quite join up or yeah. you know there are uh, you know conversations not recorded bits of tapestry missing that kind of stuff but that's the fun of it isn't yeah, it it is <laughs> but 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 what's interesting is that some writers would just go sod it, I'm just going to go and do what I want with this element yeah. of history without much sensitivity. But I don't detect that in what you're saying. No. I mean, the uh, I've got a prepared answer here. <laughs> I'm, I'm, going to have to, I'm going to have to do, uh, you know, quite a few, uh, like, uh, you know, speaking events. Uh, and this, you know, something like this question is going to come up. Of course. And so... The answer has to not give away the plot. Okay. But so my answer is this. The do you remember the, the film of Titanic? They made the purser into a villain. Yeah. He had the gun and he shot somebody and pushed children overboard and all sorts of sorts of stuff. Yes, <laughs> yes, yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. and the, they named him. And he was the purser. Yeah. Who actually was a hero on the night. And there was, you know, there was a fuss after the film. And and I thought, it's a film, which is slightly different, but I, I don't think that is morally acceptable. So I don't think you can take an historical character and make them into uh, a horrible human being. Uh, and... So that is my rule, and that is the rule that I have followed mm, throughout mm. this book. The reason I don't want to push it, obviously, is because that means it rules out everybody who's real being the baddie. Right. That's very interesting. I, there's a very minor example of exactly what you're saying in Zulu. Ah, uh, Zulu. Oh, yeah. 
in, in Zulu. Uh, yeah. No, it's not an opportunity to do Mark or Kate. Oh. Uh, because, of course, he was posh. Oh, go on. In Zulu. He's playing. Oh, uh, yes, yes. Play Lieutenant Brumhead. Um, now, it's the, the, the subject of Private Hook, who got a Victoria Cross, who's lying yeah. in um, sort of malingering in the infirmary at Rourke's Drift. And. Uh, was played as a sort of a bad, you know, a, a malingering bad soldier and all this sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, an archetype of a sort of Cockney Barra boy kind of thing, which wasn't the case. And yeah. his family were very upset about the way that yeah, was portrayed. Yeah. Um, and indeed, uh, Michael Caine's famous story is that he's at the, 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 the premiere of Zulu. And members, he sat with the members of the family that of the of the officer that he plays. Yeah, and he said, you know, and um, they, everyone's pr- pronounced it Bromhead in the film, and they said, lovely, wonderful performance, you know, great to be honoured. Blah blah blah. Uh, we have to point out it's actually Bramhead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you know, just those little things. Yeah, can chip away at the authenticity of 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 a story like that, and you know. So she yes. wants something. It's such a celebrated movie as that. Yeah, um, it sort of sours, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, I suppose I, I really felt with with Scott that we'd, you know, they're all dead. Um, I suspect all their children are dead. So we're, you know, we're we're third generation, fourth generation. People are still obviously very proud of being descendants of people these people um and so I, I you know what i did was uh which you probably notice is that you know i i i dropped in people who are completely fictional mm. and so they operate alongside the the historical characters and with the historical characters i've you know i, I i've run them forward i always think of them as being like you know um mice you know I, I just sort of start well, I run them forward but I've tried to run them forward in a direction that I think they would have gone considering their previous direction yeah so you know um if, if, if that um and I mean oats is the really tricky one because of these allegations of um uh of firing a child with a girl who was 11 um and uh Half of me wanted to kind of clear him of that completely. <laughs> Half of me wanted to actually kind of nail him for it because I think pretty much is, you know, uh, guilty of it. And in the end, I sort of got a halfway thing between the two, which, you know, I hope that somebody, you know, even somebody who was sort of related to him would read it and think, well, you know, that's not a bad human being that's been created there. You know, not, not entirely a bad human being and certainly... Um, uh, not one who uh, uh, is simply happy to leave such an act in the past. You know, it's somebody who's gone on dealing with something. Um, so, but yeah, they're, they're, they're really difficult um, decisions. And I mean, I have to say that when I'm actually writing, I mean, it's, you don't want to start thinking about this kind of thing when, when you're actually writing it, because the whole thing would just be, get far to say, I think I have to just go by what I feel, uh, works and then and then work backwards and see well you know maybe I you know I could bring that down a bit or uh, take take that forward 
I mean, Scott is the big, you know, the, the, Scott is the person that everybody loves to have a debate about. Um, but, you know, I, I've, I found the other people much more interesting, really. Um, but what I did enjoy is I thought I, because I'm, I'm writing Scott's other diary, I needed to pick up his voice, mm. and uh, you know, and so I, I read a lot of the diary, and then I picked up these little sort of ticks, and um, you know, the fact that he can never, hardly ever, say anything without criticizing Shackleton as part of it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, if, if the weather's bad, it's Shackleton's fault, and it's <laughs> just sort of all in there. Um, um, and also, there's sort of absolutely constant self justification constantly mm. somebody else's fault you know uh and that that uh, and the volume on that really goes up as he gets towards the end but i mean it's got to be said i think that you know the last 20 or 30 entries in that diary when he knows he's going to die great pieces of writing <laughs> they really are great pieces of writing i mean i don't think they're true particularly but he's, he, you can tell that he definitely knows who the audience is. Yeah. You know, he's got an eye he, on history. Yeah, he certainly has. Yeah. And, 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 and he does it with, you know, great style. I, th- I think by the end, probably gone a little bit too far. I mean, certainly for, for modern tastes. I think if you, if you read like the Letter to the Nation and stuff like that, it's, it's, it's gone a little bit far. Um, but up to then, um, it's astonishing, really, that somebody who's dying uh, can discover that they can write <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> really, really well in just in in that um, uh, in that space, and and also finding the energy to do it. I mean, it's just that's what I, I mean. Yeah, I mean, I, you'd, what, you'd think you'd just think, oh, I can't be bothered now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's what I think. I, I get up in the morning and I think I can't be bothered. And this guy was, you know, in a cook tent a thousand miles from the nearest hot meal. And, you know, he's, he's oh, you know, I must get on with a diary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, it's, 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 it is fascinating. I, I wonder. You're based in Ely, so you've got the fens yeah. stretching out in front of you. Right? Um, which, I mean, you don't really know the fens, do you? Me? No. no, I haven't explored that part of the country. Much. But it does have a certain. If if I oh, I've always felt it had a certain parallel to that sort of Antarctic uh, sort of vastness plateau yeah, yeah. Kind of thing. Yeah. You know the the featurelessness of it, and how from many miles away the smallest object can see can take on a huge significance because it's yes. the only thing you can see does that yeah. does that fuel your writing a bit in this in this yeah. circumstance no, the, for, i mean the, the 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 great thing uh i mean going back to you know crime thrillers which is sort of what i did the great thing about the fen- fences i always thought it's like um it's like a monopoly board it, it's a it's a gaming board it's a two-dimensional board on which you can move the characters around do what you like if you then let it snow which i used to do almost every single book <laughs> it, it, it's a it's a page it's a white page and you know that that definitely comes across i think in the um the fascination with um scott's last expedition is that for, you know it's a huge white page and these guys are walking across it and writing a diary so it's it, all the things begin to sort of meet up there. I think it's um, 
it's almost like they're writing a sentence you know i mean if you look at look at the moving across the snow it's like they're writing on the on the on the page and um the fens just seem to lend themselves to those kind of stories and also the i mean you can see forever but it's incredibly difficult to find something yes <laughs> yes it's, it's the two things together are really weird yeah, I've appears. always struggled with the the breadth of the view. I like that though. I I'm, I'm I struggle always... with the lack of the breadth. No, well, yeah. no, I I I I much prefer to be in an urban environment where, you know, it, it's crowded and you can, you know, pick out things very quickly and it, yeah. you know, your 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 focus is narrowed by the fact that there are things in the way. Whereas yeah. in the fens, um, and I found this whenever I've been anywhere vast open space uh the outback of australia for instance just i find it in it's in its way its vastness quite oppressive and i, and, yeah. and I think many people do don't they so do you think your fiction would reflect that landscape then because that's what we're talking about how mm. yes. the landscape you have wherever you are affects what you write about mm. yeah so. <laughs> I, yeah i mean uh, i think i mean I, I did um uh degree in geography and i ended up um uh, looking at landscape, so perception of landscape. So all the books have been about the relationship between people and the landscape that they're they're in, and and the way in which the two kind of link up. They're sort of mirrored, um, and and the fence can be very depressive, but that's that's all down to the sky. So if it's a good sky, I mean it's magnificent today. It'd be lovely to be out on the fence, or you know a big stormy sky or whatever. But if it's a, a grey winter's day, it is, I mean, you know, there's a place just north of here about five miles, it's called Suicide Fen. And I, I always think, you know, you don't want the cottage on Suicide Fen. You know, really, it's kind of, uh, yeah. Um, and the way in which, like, certainly when, when it's white, the um, the landscape and the, the sky, just they're just welded together. Yes, mm. they are. That, that, that there's not there's no gap <laughs> um so but I, i've lived in now 25 years i get a little bit claustrophobic surrounded by hills and and mountains mm. i'm fine on top of them but i don't want to be down in the valley and stuff it's really weird you get you get used to the space mm. and, and and there are no queues in the fen <laughs> no queues. you don't have to queue for anything it's brilliant. <laughs> That's true. Oh, I want to move there then. He won't. Yeah. He wants to be in the urban jungle with things and yeah. chaos. <laughs> not no, no, not necessarily. I mean, Cambridge was a good was a good um, was a good compromise. You got both really. Yeah, um, yeah. It's um, but no, it, it's um, when you're writing a book like this. How long? I mean, there's a, a monumental amount of research involved. So, how long would that process take? Well, because this. Um uh well the the silent child that put before this and this were both projects which began about 10 years ago um and have sort of bubbled under me doing the annual sort of crime thriller in the various sort of series that i was doing yeah and um i got this uh uh, uh offer from uh hodder to get these two books out um and um so it's been great you know it, it, it's, it was like you know it was the albatross around my neck. These two books, I, I really needed 
to a go through the editing process and sharpen them up and and and, and get them out but yeah i mean the, the the you know i read a lot but it's the classic um way i think to do this is to you know read everything you can take loads and loads of notes have loads of notebooks and then you put it all in a room block the room and never go back and then just sit down and write away from all of those kind of texts. As soon as you start getting out of that, oh, I wonder what, you know, wonder what the weight of that particular thing, you know, and all that kind of sort of stuff. I mean, the, I think it just destroys the life of the fictional story. That That's what you want to be, to be alive on the page is the fictional story. And the, the, the background needs to be that kind of hazy familiarity with things, mm. which is what people uh, have when they're actually living in the past, if you know what I mean. You yeah. Know, if, if, I, if I went and uh, interviewed somebody walking down the street in 1944 in London um, and said, what are you thinking about? They wouldn't say, oh, well, you know, we're wor- worried about the um, the German fourth division, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> in the, you know, and, uh, you know, we don't know whether Pluto, the pipeline will get enough petrol across. You know, they, they're going to say, well, you know, I'm worried about the, you know, the sausages. Yeah, you know, exactly. What they're going to have for tea. <laughs> so all of, all of that detailed stuff is in a sort of mist. And yeah. the stuff that's right in front of you is is you know what does it smell like? What does it taste like? What does it feel like? All all of that. And um, so if I can pick up that, I mean that's what's difficult about. I mean I, I would never attempt to bring alive the Battle of Hastings. So that, that's why I'm using the tapestry. The tapestry is how I can work my way into it. But you know I couldn't. You know I don't know where I would start. It's too far away, mm. and you'd hit those sort of huge problems like, you know, how do people really speak to each other? Otherwise you end up doing, you know, cod Anglo-Saxon sort of mm-hmm. rubbish. <laughs> you know? And it's just, just turns into, you know, life of Brian or something, you know, I mean, it's just, um, that would be a completely different project. We are the knights again. <laughs> yes, indeed. Now you will, uh, listening to you, Jimmy, it's given me courage because, um, as everyone listening to the show will know, I have a couple of whips. Um, works in progress. Uh, uh, no, no, no. One of which, one of which is set in, in 1940 and um, is a straightforward romantic spokes by tale. But the next one, you know, is takes those characters and yeah. takes one of them into an incident that happened in 1943. And this is the famous flight back from Lisbon of uh the um leslie howard the actor yeah who was shot down uh by a a complete sort of squadron of, of german fighters took this aircraft down even though it was a protected air corridor a diplomatic air mm. corridor between lisbon and and uh supposedly london and actually they landed in bristol and there's a great deal of mystery around that incident why was it shot down and one of the theories is that his um manager had a more than a resemblance to Churchill um and so maybe someone spotted him you know German yeah. spy oh, Churchill seems to have got on this plane they shot it now <laughs> but I'm using that incident as as my sort of inciting moment for yes. one of my characters to come into the present day um and uh and all the consequences of that so yeah. You, you yeah I mean I've had those qualms those thoughts that I'm playing with a story which involves the deaths of about 20 odd people on board this yeah. aircraft. 
and um you know it's it's it rather indelicate in a way but at the same yeah. time if i don't do it then i can't write my story so yeah. <laughs> yeah. so yeah. i'm gonna go ahead with that yeah i you know i think you've got a right to make up a story you know and um obviously there are um there are some boundaries um but it don't have to be boundaries you know i mean i think you should be able to pretty much um do what you want in fiction i mean obviously if you're if you're trammeling up bits of the real past then you've got to be sort of more delicate with them but i, mm. I don't think you should let, ever let that get in the way of telling the the, the fictional story that you want to tell because otherwise the books have got nothing you know if if they, if they didn't have the the court i mean the, i mean i think the most important thing in um a white lie is is falcon's story mm. and uh so uh which is completely fictionalized and um yeah um so it, it's almost like the um uh, the the other story carries in part of the, the the fictional but and it's just just about kind of knitting those two two together mm. yeah absolutely right well i think we've reached the point oh my god <laughs> yeah <laughs> Where I, I, I put on the voice, <clears throat> bear with me, <laughs> Rebecca's random question. Well, it's actually kind of related to what we've been talking about, even though I thought of it before we started. So as well as uh, being half of Hobeck, I also, I'm an editor, and I'm currently <laughs> editing a book of folklore, British folklore, and yeah. it's full of these fascinating stories about how Britain was formed and how Ireland was formed and how rocks came to be and all that sort of thing. So my question to you is, who is your favourite mythical beast or hero or legend? Who would it be? Wow. Well, yeah, I think uh, because I'm fascinated with place, it's a it's a mythical place. Mm-hmm. And if you, if you look on a uh any, any map uh of cornwall and look at um mounts bay that big sort of indentation so it's sea you know it's sea right in the middle of it on any decent map it'll say guavis lake so there is a lake in the middle of the sea and it's uh, nobody really knows why but the 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 legend which is um supported by the locals is that originally there was an island in the middle of where st michael's mount is now but a a bigger island and on the island was a lake and that is gravis lake and the island was lost in the whole kind of leonese thing of uh rising uh sea levels uh but the name of the lake persisted and so the the name of the lake sits on the on the sea over where the lake was the, the fishermen say that when they go out as they approach the lake if they look down in clear water they can see all the petrified stumps of trees oh wow which were on the island yeah where the where the lake was so that that would be my that's lake that that's lake. a good one i've learned yeah. something well <laughs> i'm feeling really guilty now because uh my other whip which is a children's book set on St. Michael's Mount. And I didn't know <laughs> that. So I'm feeling really, really remiss of me not to have uh, 
work that one in. I mean, there's all the talk of the giant, of course, that lived on St. Michael's Mount and yeah. his heart lying halfway up the steps towards the... the... There's lots of giants in British folklore, you oh, know? Oh, yeah. Like yeah. Gog and Magog in London. Gog and Magog, yeah. Well, Gog Magog. I mean, you know, that... Uh, Gog Magog Hills in Cambridge, mm. yeah, yeah. Yeah. laughingly known as the Hills. <laughs> there was, um, I think there was a historian, a Cambridge historian, who said that Troy was in the Gog that's Hills. Correct. Yeah, that's right. Um, he was uh, somebody Wilkins, I think his name was, and he wrote a book in the, I guess it came out nineties, maybe. Um, and he said that Wandlebury, which is a hill fort, yeah, on the top of the Gogmagog Hills, was the site of Troy. Yeah, right. And he was yeah. absolutely convinced. Um, and yes, there is a big trench all the way around it. Uh, yeah, you know, which I used to play war in as a kid, <laughs> running up and down, throwing dust bombs at each yeah. other and sticks as grenades and stuff like that. Um, yeah, but to- I mean, totally bizarre. Yes. Uh, yeah, certainly is. But, yeah, a friend of mine bought the book actually because we saw him on. Uh, it was on Look East, and uh, which is the BBC regional program. Yeah, it's, you know, and there was actually I think a proper documentary about it about how he was convinced that this was the the case. That's what yeah. I love about mythology, though, is you don't know for sure that it's yeah. not that it's folk tales or there's, there's an element of truth in all of it. Well, I mean, you know. Yeah. If you think back, to, I mean, the, one of the things that inspired me to, to, to I studied ancient history was the Michael Wood series um, of the 80s yeah. about In Search of Troy. And it was brilliantly put together. And in those days, he was sort of young and sort of dashing and yeah, yeah. pin-up pin up archaeologist. And um, it was, yeah, I mean, so much of what's in Homer um it's a mixture of, of fantasy and reality somewhere mm. in the middle is the real thing but you know it's uh you forgive me my phone starts ringing in the middle <laughs> of the podcast uh, nothing important but home, i i remember reading um what was the but the odyssey is it the odyssey mm-hmm. i loved mm. it and I read it when I was about eighteen. I just picked it up from Derek Smith about two ninety nine. Oh, yeah. It's brilliant, but it, it is it is the foundation stone of so much of oh, of, of our storytelling. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And we still do it now. Yes, I mean one of the really good things about myths they're a bit like um, children's nursery rhymes. They often don't quite make sense. Mm. There's 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 always elements about them which you just think well well that wouldn't have happened or that doesn't really make sense and i always think that that's quite a good thing to take over into fiction if everything makes sense it doesn't actually feel real whereas often stories um have got something in them that slightly worries you because it doesn't really quite make make sense it's a it's a real quality um and characters often do things that don't quite they wouldn't be motivated to do they just do something um and then uh, other characters react in a different kind of way and there's that kind of sort of like chaos to them and they've obviously over time been been so kind of sort of twisted and pulled around and stuff like that that they don't quite make make sense anymore but um I always think it's a it's a kind of hallmark of them being authentic that they don't make yeah. sense. Yeah, no, I, yeah. I agree. But also yeah. because real life, we don't always do things that yeah. make sense. No, we don't. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
And we're yeah. always trying to look for explanations for the world. Why is it like it is and why do things happen? And um... Yeah. Right. Oh, dear. Battery's running low. So at this point, right. we will say, Jim, JG Kelly, thank you so much for joining us. All thank the best you. with The White Lie. Um, and where can people find you online? Oh, at um, JG Kelly. That, that'll get straight there. Fantastic. <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so yeah. much for your time. No, thank you. It's real, really good fun. That was a really fascinating interview because we were asking all sorts of moral dimensions to storytelling. What right do we have to put ourselves into real events which affected real people and to uh, perhaps challenge the accepted narrative? Yes, and it's also, you were talking before the interview about uh, speculative fiction. Well, I, I quite like the way that Jim takes that, and it's not quite speculative fiction as we know it, is it? Because he writes as if we are where we are now and things have happened as they have happened. So there's this sort of very subtle change in history, but it doesn't actually change the outcome. Mm. Yeah. So that's very clever. And I think, you know, you know, what popped into my head there, and some people might think, well, why are you talking about this? But um, in a way, there is an element of this in the recent BBC series, which I think concludes this week on the telly, of The Reckoning, which is Steve Coogan as Jimmy Savile. And the reason I say that is that, you know, there's been a lot of... I'm talking about the moral dimension, because the big debate has been whether it should have been turned into a drama. Now, we've watched already the brilliant Netflix documentaries. Have we watched it to the end then? Yes, we have. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I thought you were saying there was another episode. No, 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 thinking... no, no, no. Oh, no, we've uh... watched all four episodes on the iPlayer. Yeah. And it's a tour de force from, from Steve Coogan, um, who doesn't quite look like Jimmy. No, they don't no quite... he's too thin. There's something about it. I don't think he gets the sort of... the. There's, there's no elements of... There's bits where he goes, you know, now then, now then. You know, the sort of he puts the public persona on, but most of it is is the Jimmy that the private one that was hiding all these terrible yeah. secrets and and behaviour. And so, you know, you don't get the goggle eyes sort of um, charisma no. that, that he used on telly um, coming through. But it is it's a brilliant it's a brilliant uh, piece of work. Uh, but a lot of people have said should it should should it have been made a drama. And therefore, extrapolating, and I, I was watching a debate on this on TV, you know, it is therefore entertainment if it's drama. Oh, I and I don't think, yeah, I don't think you can you can use that explanation. I mean, you know, would you make a war film it's, if you t- extrapolate the same thing because people are dying and it was real events and all that sort of thing? So, in a sense, what I think it does shed a light on is that sort of the the, the private awfulness of the man. Uh, and the people who he warped and twisted to bending to his will, if you like. And also, that these these things, they might be uncomfortable to watch, but it's educational, and it might help somebody. There might be somebody watching who's going through an experience, and they think, you know, that's I I recognise that in some form or other, and that and you know, so seeing that will help them. Mm. Um, and I think even if you haven't been through that experience, or you're not going through that experience. It's it, it it's educational. You're being it's not entertained is the right word, is it? It's well, it's like being shone on things that you know that otherwise would be, you know, swiftly swept under the carpet and forgotten. And they shouldn't be swept under the carpet. 
as in my opinion you know no. i think and and i think that's seeing the world in black and white terms saying oh it's drama that means it's entertaining that's just i get quite cross about that yeah 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 <laughs> i think i think the thing with though with jimmy savile is that he fooled, fooled everybody and we grew up as a generation watching jim will fix it and i remember my grandmother um Every time I'd see her going down to the West Country to go and visit her, she would say, oh, I've been thinking about what I would write in to Jimmy to fix for you. And, you know. I'm I wrote to Jim or fix it. You did, yeah. More than yeah, once, yeah. No, yeah. no, we were, all, we were all fooled. We were all fooled. I, and mean, I suppose there is one argument that's still quite recent and raw because I know that some of the people who um, were, had that experience have said that, that they there was one particular... Um, a woman, and she said that when she saw Steve Coogan all dressed up as Jimmy Savile, she actually sort of almost went back to that time. Yeah, yeah. Didn't even she wasn't even conscious that she was what she was saying, but she was there was something that she said that was almost like oh oh you know yeah a reaction. Well, here's here's, here's something that that shocked me that the other day um, my son James is at Cardiff University was asked he he phoned me up and he says um, I've just been in a uh, I'm going to an event where I've got to wear a fancy dress based on the first letter of my name, i.e. J. Yeah. And he said, I went into a big costumier joke shop place for, you know, fancy dress hire, that kind of place in Cardiff. And the only two costumes with J were Jesus or Jimmy Savile. And I can't believe that they're still selling Jimmy Savile outfits for fancy dress parties. I really can't believe that. What I mean, a choice. <laughs> Well, you know, it's like, you know, okay, you'd go, you know, it's like dressing as Hitler, isn't it? Um, you know, that's that's not on, really. Well, I d- uh, yeah. I, I bet mean, it's... I, 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 they, I, bit... I, I hate to think it's probably a, still a very good seller, but it does say a lot about society that that's still available. Anyway. <laughs> I just can't believe that any other Jays. There must be. Come on. He was really struggling to think Jamiroquai. of it. Jamiroquai. What do you wear a big sort of furry Janet hat Jackson. thing? Oh come on! He's not going to do do a you know wardrobe malfunction or anything like that. Anyway, let's move. Let's move on. Um, we we launched a book last week, and we've got one coming out this week. So let's talk about last week's, which was "Can I Trust You" by Rob Gittins. Uh, and uh, I commend him for his brilliant performance uh, on with Samantha Brownlee on the it UK. It was brilliant. So it'll be available on YouTube. If you missed the UK Crime Book Club interview with Sam between Sam and Rob Gittins, honestly, it was fantastic. So I recommend you seek it out. On YouTube. It's just brilliant because it's, it's you know it's Rob's such a modest guy. He's done so many things in television. It's just an extraordinary um, CV that he has. Um, and you know his humility comes through, but it's so full of wise storytelling advice there. Oh, completely. Yeah. So congratulations to Rob, and uh, congratulations on the book, which is having fantastic reviews. But a very sad thing happened yesterday. Mm-hmm. One of our bloggers' dogs ate um, a copy oh, yes. of "Can I Trust You?" And <laughs> that's going in the newsletter. I hope the image. Oh, that's a really good idea. So she she posted an image of this book. The dog had eaten the last few chapters and the cover. And she'd only gone off to make a cup of coffee. And so, you know, book devoured in 10 minutes. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so good I ate it in 10 minutes, yeah. Uh, and next week's release is... Fatal Blow by Brian Price. Fantastic. So that's the fourth book in Brian's amazing crime police procedural series. Yep, absolutely. So uh, poor Mel, she's in for it again. So yeah, of course. I'm not going to give anything away, but, you know, I do worry about that woman. Yeah, well, you know, Brian puts her through it. <laughs> and uh, there is a book launch in Bristol next there week. There is. Uh, well, 26th 
Oh, sorry, not 26th. I'm all confused. Friday the 20th um, in Clifton, the Waterstones in Clifton. Um, I can't remember the exact time, but if you check our um, website, I'll put, mm. a, put it on the latest news. Yeah, we have been hoping to go. Um, I, I suspect that I'm going to be tied up helping my dad. Yeah. Truthfully. And um, and that's going to interrupt I something else that's coming up at the weekend. I mean, in theory, be... I could go and come back on the same day, but I'm not very confident with my <laughs> driving to mm. Bristol. <laughs> no, no, So indeed. I don't know how we're going to do that. We're just, yeah. We're looking at the options. And uh, you had a surprise, well, we had a surprise invitation as well for next weekend. Oh, yeah. So um, we're going to a wedding on the Saturday, hopefully. Fingers um, crossed. Might be just me again. It yeah. depends on your dad. Yeah. Um, so this is uh, Rachel McLean who's a very successful self-published author who I um, I do some work for. I work as her publishing uh, con- uh, <laughs> coordinator, I was going to say consultant, and that sounds too grand. And, uh, yeah, so she's invited us to her evening do of a wedding. So that's in the centre of Birmingham, which is a lot closer. It is. So it's a train ride away. Yeah, um, it is. It is. So that's quite exciting. And I even got an outfit. I went shopping in Telford looking for an outfit, didn't find anything, came home, went on Vinted and spent 10 quid. Well, look, thank you so much for uh, joining us. Anything else we needed to mention this week? Um, um, I don't think so. No. I mean, we've got usual busy week coming up with um, Fatal Blow coming out. Um, but besides that, the, the night's drawing in. I've just done the last mow oh, of the Oh, we lawn. haven't mentioned who our guest is next week. Of course, and well, we should do that. So someone we've had before on the podcast. Mm-hmm. We saw at London Book Fair, and I think it's it's no word of a lie. He is probably... In the top five best-selling crime authors in the UK. Yeah, he's very loved by yeah. the sort of crime reading community. So we're very look- much looking forward to this. J.D. Kirk, or Barry Hutchison in real life, is joining us again next week. And uh, absolutely delighted to speak to him the first time. So no, yeah. no brainer to speak to him again. As he, See what he's been up to since Well, then. he's been writing romance as well. So we'll look forward to finding out <laughs> progress with that. And he was writing that with, with his wife. So he'll be joining us from the far north highlands of Scotland uh, for this next week's episode of the Hobcast Book Show. Thank you so much for joining us. Take a look at our website, plural, www.hobeck.net. Details of our books, our authors, audiobooks, etc., and our blogs, and any further news, archpub.net for our publishing services arm, and Adrian Hobart Narration for, uh, that's .com, I should say, uh, for... Uh, details of my narration work, which is uh, coming through in great gobbits. Yeah, at the you've moment. got quite a lot to do. Yeah, I need to crack on. Uh, <laughs> Stop with watching the... the rugby. Yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, rugby World Cup. You know, comes in only four years, but it's getting in the way of the, of the of the books. Anyway, thank you so much for joining us. I've been Adrian Hobart. I've been and still am Rebecca Collins. And we'd like to wish you a wonderful and creative. That's my line. Oh, sorry, a wonderful and creative week. Bye-bye. See, I gave it back to you at the end there. But I've never said bye-bye before. Well, I know. You've got that now, so that's your bonus. <laughs> bye-bye. I like that's that. That's my way of saying sorry. Thank you. <laughs> and uh... bye-bye. You've been listening to the Hobcast from Hobeck Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website, www.hobeck.net. You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto, Trad Values, 
indie spirit. 